Um, for a couple of weeks, I've, been, I've known that this particular message was coming, that uh, dealing with um, original sin and uh, this story was going to have to happen in our series on origins and on the first three chapters of Genesis. And for the last two weeks, the tree was really bothering me, um, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I was really thinking, well, things like, well, why did God even bother putting that tree in the garden? I mean, that seemed like it wasn't a very nice thing to do. Um, and, uh, and so I really tried to start to think about, well, what is it that actually happens here with this tree? There's a lot in this story, and we're not going to be able to talk about everything that's in this story. And so I want to start with this idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what, what is this knowledge that is supposedly being given? Um, I looked it up, uh, the Hebrew word for knowledge, and I kind of laughed to myself a little bit because I never realized this. It's used all the time in scripture in lots of different contexts, and the word is yada, as in, you know, like yada, yada, yada. <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, but that's the word for knowledge in the Bible. And... Um, and so I started to try to think about, well, what is, this, what is this word? What is this knowledge? And what do Adam and Eve, what kind of knowledge do they have before eating the fruit? And then what kind of knowledge do they have by eating the fruit or after eating the fruit? What actually changes here for Adam and Eve? Now, yada is actually uh, very much like our verb to know, um, because in, the, in the same way that it has a wide range of meanings. If you really think about what knowing is, it has a wide range of meanings. So it can, have, it can mean something very basic, like just knowing that something exists. That's a certain kind of knowledge. And so just to try to illustrate this today, I just want to ask you here, who, who knows about bungee jumping? Like, you know about it, right? Like, you know, most of you. Um, Okay, so those of you who know about bungee jumping, can you just tell me what equipment I need for bungee jumping? A rope. Some people are saying a rope, and some people are saying a bungee cord. Okay. All right, that, that, that's good. Okay. So some people, some people know about bungee jumping, and then others said we need a rope. So... Um, Uh, what's the best place, if I was going to go to the best place in the world to bungee jump, where would you recommend I go? Winkler. Winkler. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. New Zealand. It, oh, say I want to do the highest bungee jump in the world. What, where would I go for that? Google. Google, yes. <laughs> Which I did. It's actually, you want to go to the Royal George, uh, sorry, Royal Gorge. <laughs> that makes more sense. Royal Gorge Suspension Bridge in Colorado if you want to do the highest bungee jump in the world. Um, I guess not highest, you're kind of going into a gorge. Um, but it's 1,053 feet, or that's 321 meters, if, uh, if you want to, if you're metric. Where can I learn to bungee jump? What's the best place to go to learn to bungee jump? Yeah, yeah go to the internet. But yeah, yeah like you go and you would research and you'd find that out. So now, we actually don't... It doesn't seem like anybody here actually really knows much about bungee jumping, right? We all know bungee jumping, but we also don't know it. 
Now, what if I got all of that information that I just asked of you, which none of us really knew, uh, what if I got all that information and I went and actually bought all the equipment and I went down to Colorado and I went on the bridge and I stood there and I looked and I went, no way. <laughs> I, and then I never jump. Do I know about bungee jumping? Now, from the perspective of someone who's done no research, has bought nothing, has not traveled out to the bridge, I actually know a lot about bungee jumping, don't I? But from the perspective of someone who has bungee jumped all over the world and done it for the last 20 years, I know nothing about bungee jumping because I never jumped off the bridge. See, this is our word knowledge, right? So did Adam and Eve know about good and evil before eating from the tree? See, because before eating from the tree, they knew God and they knew good. And they actually had an implicit knowledge that if God prohibited something, then that thing must not be good. In other words, they actually knew about sin, even though sin had not yet happened. They knew about evil before eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge can be about discernment and about decision-making. So we could think that Adam and Eve did not have the ability to know what was good and what was evil before they ever ate the fruit, but that actually cannot be. The fact that God gave them a prohibition means that God created Adam and Eve with the ability to understand that it was wrong to eat from the tree, right? They've got to know that. They were also created with something really important. They were created with the freedom to choose to eat from the tree or not. So what kind of knowledge might this be talking about? I think maybe the knowledge that came from eating the fruit is a knowledge that is more about this deeper experiential kind of knowledge. It's the jumping off the bridge and doing the bungee jump kind of knowledge. God actually gave Adam and Eve a certain kind of knowledge in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 17, he told Adam, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. That's actually some pretty good knowledge about that tree, isn't it? If you eat from that tree, you're going to die, so don't do it. That's a good piece of information that Adam knew and presumably passed on to Eve, although the story never tells us that. Now, this brings up that particular philosophical point about the tree and also about the serpent, which we're not really going to talk too much about the serpent today. But it's this point, is what are they doing in God's perfect garden in the first place? Why are they even there? And I've been doing a lot of thinking about that for the last couple of weeks and have thought about it before as well, as probably some of you have. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I think, after doing a bunch of reading, that it comes down to love. See, God loves his creation, and particularly his people that are created in his image. And the problem is, is that without the possibility of his people rejecting him, then their love for him is not genuine love. So God chose to create people out of love, and people need to choose God in order for them to really love God. You follow? So I think about my own daughter. 
I give her every advantage I can. I tell her I love her every day, multiple times a day. And at age five, it seems like she might have no choice but to love me in return. But the truth is, she does have a choice. And I'm glad she has that choice. I hope and pray as she gets older and goes through teenage years and even into adulthood that she will choose to love me. I will keep choosing to love her and will do everything I can to express that to her. I'll do that, I hope, even if she turns away. Now, if she was required to love her parents as though she'd been programmed for it, then when she said, I love you, it actually wouldn't matter very much, would it? See, God longs to hear a genuine, I love you, from his people. And so, we must have a choice to not say it. We must have a choice to walk away from God, so that when we walk toward God, it's genuine. Now, God saying, don't eat from that tree, may seem a little arbitrary. Maybe it is. But in some ways, the very first commandment that God gave to the people, it maybe needs to be something a little arbitrary. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I've come to think that there was perhaps nothing particularly special about that tree or about the fruit other than the fact that God said, don't eat it. Because as soon as they did eat it, they gain the knowledge of evil. And it's not because of the power of the fruit or the power of the tree, but because they turned away from God and became estranged from him. So you see what this this tree does. And it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it could be um, the fact that Adam and Eve knew what perfect goodness was. They already had that knowledge. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now you know both fully, or you're going to come to know both fully. Again, I, I think about my daughter. If I say to her, don't touch the oven when it's hot, I'm, of course, looking out for her when I do that. But what if she goes ahead and touches the oven or gets really close? She might get burned, but also what happens is our relationship gets strained because she knows that I'm upset or disappointed, and she actually learns multiple lessons. Lesson one, don't touch the oven, right? (laughs) Lesson two, when you do something wrong, you feel bad in relation to a person. She doesn't feel bad in relation to the oven. She feels bad in relation to me. So when she thinks about me or sees me, it's because I'm the one who told her not to touch the oven, and she went ahead and did it anyway. So she feels bad in relation to me. And something has to happen between us to fix that. So the second lesson that's learned is that when you do something wrong, it damages relationships. And this is exactly what happens with Adam and Eve garden. The third lesson that she needs to learn is trust your father. (laughs) And it's a shame, really, that we need to learn that. But it seems that Adam and Eve didn't trust their father either. 
And ever since, human beings have needed something to happen to fix the broken relationship between us and God. Ever since, we have needed a whole process to get back to our intended state of trusting our Father. What is this original sin? What is it? St. Augustine was, was perhaps the one who first spelled out the idea of original sin in the 4th century. See, we usually think of sins as things that we do wrong, right? But Augustine observed that human beings seem somehow corrupted by sin, that we are in some way held under its power. And when you read through Scripture, particularly Paul's letters, this idea of being held in sin's power, it really holds up. It's not just that we sin, that we do things that are wrong. It's that sin somehow works in us, through us, and on us. Our current human condition is one of sin. But it's important to remember that this is not our true human nature. Our true nature was what you found in Genesis chapter 1, created in the image of God. This sinful nature entered in in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve turned from God. This was the fall, right, if you hear about that, the fall. And ever since that fall, human beings have had a fallen nature, twisted by sin because of what Adam and Eve did. This is what St. Augustine laid out. Now, it's, we sometimes want to say, well, you know, it's just human nature to eat from the tree when you're told not to eat from the tree, right? That's just human nature, is to, is to just do the, the thing that you're not supposed to do or to want the thing which you can't have. That's just human nature. And, and when we say it like that, we, we actually use it as an excuse for giving in to temptation. Augustine's point was that the reason we want that which we can't have is because of original sin. In other words, it isn't our true human nature to want what we shouldn't have. That isn't our true human nature. That's actually our fallen human nature. Our fallen human nature makes us want what is off limits. And something is needed to repair that fallen human nature. Adam and Eve's sin was the original sin, but according to Augustine, each of us is infected by it. Augustine believed that it was passed down through the generations from father to son, from mother to daughter, and, and on and on. And many still hold to this view. Now, others deny the concept altogether of original sin, saying that sins, you know, if, if there is even such a thing as sin, because some will even question that, um, they'll say that sins are, are really only about individual wrongdoing and not about this other thing that kind of gets passed down. Still others deny a passed-down generational idea for original sin, but they believe that sin is both a power that seems to hold sway over human beings and is about individual wrongdoings as well. So there's a combination. 
and there are many other opinions. In fact, theologians have been arguing about original sin since before Augustine wrote about original sin. But why is this original sin important? I actually think that St. Augustine was on to something in the fourth century. And maybe that's why we're still talking about things that he wrote. And perhaps God was onto something in the Bible, and that's why we're still talking about things that God put in the Bible. In Augustine's exploration of original sin, what he did was he, look, he tried to look at what was the real sin of Adam and Eve. What, what was the real thing that they did that was the problem? Was it just that God said, don't eat from the tree, and they disobeyed. Is it just disobedience? Is that the thing? Or is there something else? In doing this kind of thinking, he was concerned to show that there is a root sin, a sin from which all sins originate, in a sense. And this story of the first sin, as part of our story of origins in these first few chapters of Genesis, uh, gives us sort of the origin of sin, or the original sin of human beings. And if we can discover what that original sin is, what their problem really was, then we can be especially careful of it for ourselves. And does anyone know what Augustine identified that sin as? So Augustine identified our root sin as what? Anyone know? Pride. Pride is what he said was the, the root sin of Adam and Eve, was that original sin. Right? So, and this is the temptation. So the serpent is talking to the woman and basically says, you know, you're not going to die if you eat the fruit. Your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. And what the serpent is doing is tapping into that sense of pride. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. And so they ate from the fruit. And this also plays out in Genesis. You find it in other stories as well, like the Tower of Babel narrative, which talks about how the people wanted to build a tower that could reach heaven to make a name for themselves. Pride. And we see it around us all the time now as well, right? And this idea that Augustine put forward, that was based on other ideas that had come before him, but this idea really stuck into our consciousness in Western Christianity in particular. It really stuck. You, a lot of you have probably heard it. Maybe you didn't know necessarily it was from Augustine, but heard that this is kind of the, the big sin or the root sin of pride. Now, I happen to believe that I, I think there's lots to learn here. I think it's a good lesson to learn. But I think in a lot of ways, the reason it stuck was actually because those who were writing theology and more importantly, those preaching in churches had a lot of power, were amongst the most educated, and tended to believe that they were absolutely right. And to their credit, they might have recognized that in themselves and realized, well, we ought not get puffed up by pride. And so I think some of those theologians tried really hard to kind of remind themselves to put themselves under God. They would also see uh, power at work in the world and realize that people are kind of in it for themselves. 
that doesn't necessarily always work when we start considering the poor, the downtrodden, the weak. In particular, as women writers start to write more theology, they call into question this idea of pride because they've been on the opposite side of things, yet they still want to recognize that they have sin, that maybe pride isn't the root sin. Yet, I think there's still a good lesson to learn. The reformers, John Calvin and Martin Luther, agreed essentially that Augustine was basically right. But Calvin and Luther and other reformers as well believed that there was something even more basic behind the sin of pride. And I'm not sure why this didn't take such a big a hold as Augustine's ideas. And that was what they called unbelief. They said unbelief is actually behind the sin of pride. Now, it isn't that Adam and Eve doubted God's existence. They knew God and experienced God there with them, there with them in the garden. Uh, what Calvin and Luther did was they both related unbelief to them not believing God's word, in particular when God said, do not eat of that tree or you will die. They said, well, he, they didn't believe God. Their first sin was not believing God about that because if they had believed God, then they wouldn't have eaten from the tree. Now, Calvin goes even farther than Luther and goes to a really interesting place, I think. It isn't just that they did not believe what God says or God said. It's that they stopped trusting God. They stopped trusting God fully. So they might have still had a bit of trust, but not to the same extent or not what they were supposed to have. So they lost faith in God the same way you might lose faith in a friend or in a family member. It isn't that they thought God was lying to them about the tree. It's that somehow their trust in God got mixed up or got broken. And that that fact that they allowed that to happen as human beings, that ends up opening up the road to a deep understanding of evil, which leads ultimately to death. When looked at this way, you can actually see that pride is a form of not trusting, right? So we rely on ourselves, we boost up ourselves because we're not willing to submit ourselves to God. We're not willing to trust in God. But other things will also be a form of not trusting as well. Worrying is a form of not trusting. Hoarding our things is a form of not trusting. Revenge is a form of not trusting. Overworking in our jobs is a form of not trusting in God. And when you look at much of the Bible, it actually deals with one of the, the core sins that the Bible deals with is the sin of idolatry. And idolatry is just placing something else above God or in God's place. Pride is actually a form of idolatry where we place ourselves in the place of God. But it's lack of trust that leads to idolatry. We'll place our trust in other things rather than placing our trust in God. We'll place our trust in money rather than putting our trust in God. If we trusted God completely, we wouldn't put other things in his place. We wouldn't place our trust in things like money or power or politics or ourselves. Adam and Eve failed to trust God for what is good. And in a sense, what they did was, instead of just 
trusting God, they decided, we want to know for ourselves. They decide, we're going to make the decisions about which trees to eat from. They want to make their own decisions about right and wrong. And this leads to a level of knowledge of evil for human beings that, when I think about it, I really wish we didn't have it. I really wish we didn't have that kind of knowledge. I wish we could go back to the kind of knowledge before eating from the tree, where we know what evil is because we know what good is, as opposed to a first-hand knowledge of it. Now, some might argue that this knowing for ourselves and, and trying to, to get at, well, we, we've got to know for ourselves, that, that's at the core of being human. Um, and I would say that that's actually uh, you know, more from Star Trek than it is from the Bible. Um, Star Trek kind of puts that out if you ever watch that. It's all about exploration and the search for knowledge and truth. That's what they're saying. And that's, they always say that's the core of human, humanity is that's what we're on this search and this quest for, for greater knowledge. But Genesis doesn't say that at all. Genesis makes the claim that the core of being human is being in the image of God. That it's not about knowing everything that God knows, nor is it about understanding everything that God understands. When it comes to something like trying to understand why there are terrible natural disasters that cause such great pain and suffering, why does that happen? We don't know. We don't see how God sees. But being made in the image of God is not about having his knowledge. It's about our capacity to love, to care for and steward all of God's beautiful and good creation. And you see, what Adam and Eve did instead of receiving the goodness that God had freely given to them they instead decided, let's take it for ourselves. They took for themselves on an empty promise that they would have the same knowledge that God has. And I think most of us continue to struggle with this. We don't trust God. We take for ourselves, believing that somehow our taking will fix whatever problem we might have. We don't trust God with our lives, with our stuff with our jobs, with our families. We take it upon ourselves and think somehow we are going to have the knowledge to be able to fix all this. We don't trust God. Uh, to close, I want to read to you from uh, John Calvin's commentary on Genesis. This is what he says about uh, chapter 3, verse 6. We must keep in mind the nature of the pettiness by which they were led into this delusion. He's talking about Adam and Eve. Led into this delusion so fatal to themselves and to all their descendants. The flattery of Satan was plausible. You shall know good and evil. But that knowledge was accursed precisely because it sought in preference. It was sought in preference to God's favor. For this reason unless we deliberately want to get tangled in the same snares, let us learn to depend wholly on the will of God alone, whom we acknowledge as the author of all good. And since scripture everywhere admonishes us of our nakedness and poverty 
and declares that what we have lost in Adam is to be restored in Christ. Let us renounce all self-confidence and offer ourselves empty to Christ that he may fill us with his riches.